0: Some people translate it as intuition, but I'm not sure that's a, a pr- appropriate word. But, but khan is very related to, in my experience, to this, the sensual level of direct experience, meaning that it's not immediately available for intellectual interpretation. And it's not immediately available to our external five senses so much. That's why it has something that's slightly, slightly next to but distinct from those discriminatory sensibilities.
1: I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Taiwan is famous for its oolong tea, and especially if you're in the south of the island, it's the go-to leaf for sharing with your friends. But up in the north, while oolong is still a standard, there's another leaf. It's got a smoky, charcoal-roasted, nutty, and floral taste. It's called Tia Guan Yin. Tia Guan Yin. You might be familiar with hearing the name Guan Yin, also known as avio Kiteshkvara, the goddess of mercy. But this is Tia Guan Yin. This stuff is named the iron goddess of mercy. Iron goddess of mercy. I love the image and the juxtaposition, the iron goddess goddess of mercy iron because there's moments in life when you need some fierce mercy. Not the sweet Jesus mother Mary mercy, but the getting your ass kicked because it's the shortest distance between two points and you've been too damn stubborn and recalcitrant. And if you don't change your tack soon, you're certainly headed for the disaster kind of fierce mercy. I think it's helpful, more than helpful. It's necessary to know and to see and to feel and allow for the kinds of mercy that break us. Break us out of a stagnating contentment. Destroy the illusions at the roots of our deepest sufferings. Without apology, strip away what we've half-heartedly been chiseling at for years and hold us to the higher aspirations we have but are too frightened to stand up for. I love the image of mercy as solid and immovable. The truth within ourselves we bump up against but have not yet developed the congruity to live fully into. I love the image of iron, strength of earth, capable of being weapon or tool, something with the capacity to harm or to heal, something you can't argue with or pretend that it's something other than it is. Something rises up in me when I consider mercy to have an edge that compassion is not just a sweetness that allows for healing, but also a fierceness that lets you know on no uncertain terms exactly where you stand. It's an energy empty of judgment but full of clarity, without malice but with force, without apology and full of the kind of unvarnished compassion That brings undeniable capital T truth to your suffering. The iron goddess of mercy, that loving spirit that brings the clarity of how you've been complicit in creating the circumstances of your suffering. The iron goddess of mercy will take your excuses and grind your petty grievances into dust. She is worthy and reliable in a way that you both hope for and hope you never need but we all need the particular kind of cutting away of delusion from time to time that this ferocious power of love has in store for us. When our defenses and misguided habits of mind are best stripped away, it might feel torturous, but that is simply the resistance being burned away. Mercy comes in different forms. It can arrive as a sort of gentle grace or as the iron goddess whose heart of love carries the force of earthquakes and hurricanes Sometimes it takes a force of nature to strip away the layers of excuse, resentment, entitlement, and fear that we all carry. In a moment, we're going to get into a conversation with Nigel Dawes on using our embodied sensing as it arises in the space between experience and cognition as part of the diagnostic process, along with some thoughts on his new book and a look at treating patients with lingering COVID symptoms. We are almost a year into the pandemonium created by COVID and there is a lot in the treasury of East Asian herbal medicine that can be helpful in this time where active cases are falling, but the number of those with longer term complications is rising. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit acufastneedles.com/cheological geological to learn how.
2: Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Meiwei.com to find the perfect Pulsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face, so subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust meiwei Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine.
1: I love how technology can help to automate my office, and I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so. Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to janeapp slash switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code GEOLOGICAL at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Nigel was on Geological back in February of 2019, so if you enjoy today's conversation, you also might want to check out that episode. It's number 71. Now, let's get hands-on with our herbal medicine. Nigel Dawes, welcome back to Geological. Thank you, Michael. Absolutely delighted to be talking with you again. I always enjoy digging into Shanghan Lunish kinds of things, and uh, you know, one of the things that I have appreciated about the work that you do is that you you've got you've got a hand in some really old medicine. You got a hand on with some really hands on medicine. You know, you've got this work. At least from my perspective, I took a class with you many years ago. But, uh, you know, what I see of the work that you, yeah, Portland, (laughs) Oregon. It was was a while ago. It was a a while ago. ago. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, One of the things I've always appreciated about the work that you do is that you've got this, this way of attending to the body in real time in a very sensate way. And turning that into information that can be used with a lineage of medicine that goes back thousands of years. And I think it's just extraordinary the way that this medicine offers us the opportunity to be very present in the moment that we're in and to be pulling on these resources that have been passed down from generation to generation to generation. It's wound its way down to us. And then we got people like you do things like write books about it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, that's... uh... That's quite a mouthful there yeah I mean I, uh, yes this this sort of it's not tenuous it's 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 clearly um, well established but uh, this correlate or this relationship as you, as you say or as you expressed it between you know the historical uh, lineages uh, which hmm. are long as we know and and you know just before we came on there we would just you know had this comment about not just long, um, but also very much transcultural. You know, one of the things that sometimes I, a bit of a pet peeve of mine, I suppose you could say, but having been trained principally in Japan, not China, um, although I spent some time in China, um, is sometimes, well, I certainly don't want to be critical, but it's, I suppose I am slightly being, in the sense that this we sometimes get a bit of a hegemonic message about, Chinese medicine, and clearly, there's no one going to make. Certainly, I wouldn't make any big case uh, for saying that it's anything other than Chinese in origin. Most many of the many of the major threads of what we have inherited, you know, several thousand years later, did did start their days in the Chinese continent, what is now the Chinese continent. That's very clear. But you know, it's it's important to mention and or remind people, remind ourselves that. Uh, Those threads, tentacles, if you like, spread out quite quickly into quite a number of different uh, areas of the mainland, but then also across to Japan and south and, you know, in all directions, actually. So that, um, and the point I'm making here is just that naturally and, you know, organically, those different cultures, as they embodied that information, um, took it in different directions. So we we have something that began life as... You know, a fairly monolithic and very clear beginning, and those foundations are still with us. But I think the developments, progressions, diversions uh, are so multiple that at this point, even just calling it East Asian medicine is 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 is, is quite not an, almost not enough, because of course now we have iterations that are, have their own genuine. Uh, lineages in Europe and in America and and you know that you know have have several generations of of, of, of uh, practice and teaching so um, but anyway to come back to your point yes it's um taking all that history and all that you know the different iterations of that history but also trying in your own way to concretize things or make things practical or or, or see how the beautiful Delicate intricacies of the theory and the theoretical frameworks and the philosophical frameworks that kind of underpin what we do, and place them and replace them continuously in a practical setting with patients in a room, working with them. That's that's the challenge that we that we face. You know, each of us as practitioners. Now, of course, we have illustrious, um, you know, and and very accomplished scholars and other individuals who may not necessarily practice or may never have practiced but and they provide a huge important role too in terms of sustaining that history and um, interpreting it and, and looking at that whole side of things but I think those of us who are practitioners we've always got to we're always faced with that challenge to try to deepen on the one hand our understanding of a huge huge deep river of, of, of knowledge, basically. And at the same time, to find the places that we can grab a piece of that, internalize it, and then give it expression in, in a real setting, in a concrete setting. That is, that is, that is a, I mean, I personally find that not just challenging, but that's kind of the fun of it.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes. Is, well, <laughs> I love. So it keeps me awake. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And I love your phrase, give it expression. That we take it in, and we and we give it expression. It it comes to us. It comes, and then it comes through us, right? Mm. If we embody it, like you say, and we do that in our clinical work, that's where it actually happens. Yes, and and your point is so well taken. We do say things like Chinese medicine sometimes without remembering, and like like you were just saying too, like even calling it East Asian medicine doesn't quite capture it at this point because it has wound its way into Europe that has traditions that go several generations it's absolutely. found its way into North America right where we now have second and third generation practitioners as well and so this thing that did begin in China is all over the world now
0: absolutely and and to add to that uh, Michael I mean we, we we shouldn't forget and I'm very much not knowledgeable about, for example, Indian subcontinent, um, Mm. uh, southern Asian medicine. But I think we, what little I do know, it seems to point very obviously to the fact that, in fact, although acupuncture itself, I think, clearly seems to have origins that are unique to China, um, certainly herbal medicine... Body work, breathing exercises, and movements—these are not unique to China by any means. And, and the Ayurvedic system predates um, some of the early Chinese uh, evidence. So, in fact, we're all also looking even pre-China um, to you know Ayurveda and, and and probably Arabic medicine, also and various other traditions. So it's a uh, you know there's a lot of interesting interplay uh, historically that uh, is worthy of at least some in my case, somewhat superficial, but, you know, attempts to kind of capture the whole just to see where we've come from. And I think that relates a lot to, you know, how then we can sort of feel, you know, comfortable in our own, as you say, expression of whatever we're doing. Because otherwise you're always, you know, although you're honoring and you're respectful of the past, if you don't take a stand with your own expression, in a sense, you're always governed by other people's ideas. And, Absolutely. And, and that can't really be authentic in a way, in, in my opinion. It, it's,
1: then it's not alive. It's not alive, yes. It's right. not alive. It's, you know, my teacher told me, or Zhang Zhongjing said, or you know, whoever you, you make the authority to be, hmm. if you somehow haven't taken what they have shown us or described to us or invited us, to explore for ourselves, and then we actually do that exploration, then then it is dead medicine. It's not a living tradition. Right. I I had an experience uh, probably five years ago. I was doing some acupuncture, and I was putting some needles in on the legs, yin channels, and then I was thinking, well, you know, Dr. Shea would say that I should go to the arms and do some yin chant, and I thought, I've been doing this for 15 years with Dr. Shea in the back of my mind saying, now you go do this. <laughs> and, and with all due respect to Dr. Shea, cause Dr. Shea was great. And she gave me a fantastic scaffolding to start to understand medicine with. In that moment, I questioned for a moment, well, is that right in this moment for this person? And how would I know? What do I know about the abdomen? What do I know about the pulse? What do I know about the various markers that help me to navigate in the clinic? What do they say? And so it was a chance to have Dr. Shea in the back of my mind and have a little conversation that said, thank you, Dr. Shea, but not for this person. And here's why. Yes. Then it becomes alive, right? Then it's like super Chinese would say Ling right? It's like lively and energized.
0: Yes. Well, it's, it's yeah, that, that topic is really close to my heart because although in Japan I was mostly focused on the medical studies, I did some, I sort of flirted with martial arts a little bit, some of the softer martial arts and some other practices, including a Zen practice that I had developed towards the end of my time there, which became very important to me actually. Um, but why I reference these different disciplines is just that there was a common experience I had amongst the whether it was the sangha, the zendo, or the group of people I'd sit with or, 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 or my fellow students in, 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 um, in acupuncture and herbs and so on, um, there was often this same kind of phenomenon, I guess, that I noticed emerging where some of us or some individuals would take an approach in their studies or practice or both um, which was very conformative with uh, mm-hmm. what they were told. And I had definitely, and I still have, a part of me that's very much of that kind of mold where I, f- I feel like I want to be respectful and I feel like there are seniors and people who have, as we say in Japanese sensei, the, the one who went before. Um, so they've been they've been there already, so I should listen. And I, I still have a very great respect for that that kind of model. But at the same time, you know, and then there were others who were, I, I would say, deliciously irreverent in a way. Um, uh-huh. I had one or two friends uh, who, you know, they definitely went much further than I would ever have done in terms of challenging teachers, for example, or, or you know, being a bit naughty or, or breaking the rules, or all. so. There was sort of this constant—I um, wouldn't say battle, but it was an interesting interplay between this kind of loyal, um, rather narrow following approach to a teacher or to an idea. Uh, or to a philosophy versus this more rebellious approach. And I think that somewhere in between is, is a is a healthy place to be because yeah, there's a place for both. I think um, if you think of all the, in our medicine, all the so-called great teachers or the historical teachers who stand out and who, about whom, whose lives we know a little bit more because presumably they were pretty well known in their own lifetimes, they were not, Passive individuals, by all accounts, they <laughs> were not conformative, <laughs> and and they and they certainly broke rules. And they and one of the reasons their works stand out is because of that. So it's interesting yes. that, I think, yes, finding your own expression and being willing to, to move, let's say, in a slightly divergent track from 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 the way you've
1: been taught is is not such a bad thing. <laughs> Well, I think it gets to that whole interplay of yin and yang, where we're looking at two things that appear to be completely opposite, but they're actually poles of a greater unity. And if we can grasp that larger unity, now we have the ability to fluidly move between those poles as is being called for in whatever moment we're in. Mm. It's not this, not that. It's both this and that. But beyond that, the this and the that are a greater unity itself. Mm. Yes, yeah. I I totally
0: agree. I was, I'm just reminded of a, if if, I, if you'll indulge me for a second, I'll tell a little story because um, it has to do with uh, my, my shiatsu experience in Japan, actually. And mm. um, So I don't know if you have uh, knowledge of the, Shiatsu history, a little bit, but uh, I don't. The, uh, I actually
1: but, don't. You know, it's one of those mm. things I know it comes from Japan. I've had some treatments, they've been delightful. Uh-huh. I, I've had people on the podcast who are strictly Shiatsu practitioners, mm. and I love talking to them because they come from such an embodied uh, perspective with the work. I mean, they really know about listening to their hands, and so I, I always love talking to them. But as far as like the history and where it comes from, and no, wow. I, I don't know. So yeah, man. <laughs> well, I'll just, T- I'll just give story. a little story.
0: It's not really going to be a diatribe on the history, but but uh, but by the way, since you mentioned that, I mean, my own um, with regard to this book I just published, uh, my own background is hugely influenced and informed by my shiatsu training. And um, I think probably I wouldn't have written this book, even though it's a book primarily about campo and herbal treatment, um, I couldn't really, I don't think have got to the point confidently of expressing a lot of the, you know, things in it without my shiatsu background. Yeah, it's a very, it's a, it's very close to my heart. And it was, the f- it was my first contact with, you know, East Asian medicine too. But uh, the story I was thinking of was when I, uh, there's, a, there's a guy called uh, Shizuto Masanaga was his name, um, anyone in the shiatsu world would know his name, he's 20th century sort of monolithic figure of modern shiatsu, he died quite young sadly, he was in his late 50s, um, got cancer. Um, but he was probably single-handedly in that sort of mid-20th century period where so many things in Japan seemed to be happening in in all walks of life, not just medicine, you know, and industry, and all, you know, Japan was building after the war and all of that time. So he started this whole, uh, he he was a pretty devout um, Buddhist and uh, quite a committed Zen practitioner and he formed, he actually gave a, a, an acronym to his work and called it Zen Shiatsu, and, mm. it, and it had a particular kind of approach and style. But what made me think of him was that, you know, when he was ill, and um, obviously dying, actually, um, as uh, often some of those old style teachers did, they would start to think about who was going to take over the Institute, he had an institute in Tokyo, and who was going to be which one of his deshi, his followers, was going to. Now, he had at that point people of 20 or 30 years who had been following him, and the person he ended up choosing was quite a young upstart. He was only, it had only been practicing with him for five years, um, which in Japanese terms well, or that kind of context was not peanut.
1: even a beginner yet. Yeah, the beginner.
0: <laughs> um, And I have no, and and I'll fully acknowledge what I'm about to say is completely made up because I have no way of knowing, obviously, Masanago's thinking. Um, First of all, he died in 1980, and I arrived in Japan in 1981. So I'm, yeah, around that time. So anyway, I never met this particular individual, uh, but I met the person that and then became the student for many years of this person that he nominated to take over Iokai, which was the name of his institute. Which mm, was The a, Upstart. You, know, you studied with the Upstart. Yes, yes, mm. the Upstart. Um, Suzuki Takeo was his name. And I, I, I many of us often wanted, because certain people's noses were definitely put out of joint in the Seattle world, um, notably some of his senior students who felt, I suppose, understandably dissed by this decision. And... Um, Uh, Unfortunately, just to give an end to the story, uh, fortunately, unfortunately, uh, Mr. Masanaga's wife, who survived him, who was very involved politically in the the running of the center, uh, came to dislike this idea that this new person, Suzuki, was actually sort of taking the work of the master and moving it in a different direction, which... What I was going to say is made up by me. My, my interpretation of that was that Masanaga fully understood that Suzuki was going to do that,
1: mm-hmm. and that's
0: why he chose him as, mm-hmm. as someone who was not actually bound in this very kind of traditional Japanese model of, oh, we're going to do what the teacher did forever until we die. Um, and eventually, in fact, not very long after, he took over, I think about three years, two or three years, there was a bit of a dispute and uh, Suzuki ended up le- sadly leaving the institute and moving and starting to teach on his own. And we all kind of, most of us went with him. Um, but I just tell that story because it was an interesting, not to sort of demonize anyone or say right or wrong, but it was an interesting, um, and I've seen it in a lot of different disciplines and practices where if you, you know, try, if, as you say, if you don't embody and develop, what you've been taught, then it becomes a kind of a rote thing that loses some kind of spirit to it. And, um, you know, although you might have been doing something 20, 30, 40 years, you know, if it's, if it's not really, if it's not alive, then it's, it's not growing, then I don't know, I think it, lo- it doesn't just stay there. It, it, you lose something. You begin to I, lose I think something. you
1: do lose something. You yeah. absolutely lose something. Yeah. You become ossified. Really what I think we're talking about here, Nigel, is the process of evolution, right? Mm -hmm. When you think about evolution, when you think about biology, very, very basic sense biology, you need some DNA that's pretty damn stable, right? You need the conformative, very stable DNA because that's going to give you a framework. That's the material. That's the material. Mm. But here's the other thing. What drives evolution? Mutation, innovation. Yes. Things that it's like, Wait a minute, I, har- I hardly recognize that. It looks a bit like me, but it don't act like me. Mm-hmm. What the hell is that thing? That's some, that's some <laughs> kind of aberration. Well, yes. it could be an aberration. And it might, you know, there's a lot of mutations that happen in the biological world that don't survive mm-hmm. and for good reason. But some yes. of them do. Yes. A lot yes, of them yeah. do. and that's so. So we're really, I think we're talking evolution. And again, we're back to this unity where we need something stable and conformative. And we need something a bit irrelevant, irreverent, and um, open to newness. Yeah, right. No, I think that
0: that's absolutely right. I, I'm reminded of that revelatory, revelatory moment in history mm. not so long ago. I don't know how many years, perhaps ten or less, of the mapping of the genome, the human mm-hmm. genome, which was a phenomenal uh, event and so exciting and. Yet, within only a year to two after that, um, scientists, you know, geneticists started to realize that, oh, okay, now we have the map. But actually, it's not the map because <laughs> that's just the material. And then you have these funny things like telomeres and all these different um, things that act on the material and ex- express things in totally different ways. Um, so I think that's another good example of that Um Yes, the potential, I guess in Chinese medicine we have those words too, right? We have the term Xing, uh, which is form, right? Yes. Uh, And the form that something takes, but we also have the term Jing, which is essence. So, you know, the Xing doesn't always express exactly the entirety of the essence. It's always a manifestation of some part of it that is not always predictable, um, such as our features, for example. You know, our brother and our sister don't look exactly like us, even though the Jing was the same, basically. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, um, but yes, you're absolutely right. There, there's, you can't, there's no way around the fact, it seems like a fact at this point, that unless you, you keep developing something, it, it, it loses a sense of vitality.
3: It's at ansesselsturman.com forward slash sinews 2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you.
1: Spot on. Well, I want to I take a, it's not really a detour, but it, you know, we've been talking about history and you know where these things come from. I know that you've just finished this book. It's taken you a while. We were talking the other day and you said, yeah, I would have had it done a few years ago, but um, I had this historical thing I needed to look into. And like, oh yeah, I'll look at that for a week or two and write about it, but it, it took you years. Yes, from that point, yes. My publisher was very,
0: she, um, luckily I had done um, a translation before with her um, as my publisher. And I think that was great because she sort of, we'd come to know each other fairly well and she was much more tolerant than I think someone might've been, because you're right. It was, it, uh, that took about from that point, which was already three years into the project. It took another two years to, to actually, you know, get, cause I'm a bit like that. I get very sidetracked once I get into something that's interesting. So, yeah, um, so
1: what, what was it that sort of took you down that path? And what did you find down there?
0: Right, well, it was, as you say, it was a history chapter. It was a, the chapter, the second chapter in the book is, is, I decided to tackle or attempt to tackle a bit of the history of the development of the use of the abdomen in medicine and in the broader context of Japanese culture um, uh, over you know a couple of millennia or a little bit less. And I thought I was probably a bit short on knowledge, going into that. Uh, but I thought I had a fairly decent grasp of what I was going to say. And then once I started, I realized the, the enormity of the task and I thought, well, I've got, I've got two choices here. I have either, you know, fudge it and skip over stuff and just do something very, you know, superficial, or I've got to, I'm going to have to research this and, and that will require a lot of referencing and reading. Um, uh, so I just decided that's the path I'll take. And, um, it it took a long time, but I the reason was, and you're asking about reason. I, mean, I I don't think I had a developed reason. I think a lot of times in writing, when I find a challenge, I'm much more likely to try to run with it than run away from it. So I, mm. I wanted to do justice to it. I I did feel, and I do feel that giving something like the use of abdomen in, in clinical practice, giving it a historical platform, is. I felt was really essential, especially because being at least in its origin, again, as we were saying earlier, it, it is a Chinese, mostly it's referenced in the earliest of the Chinese texts, but particularly the Shang Lun in regard to um, herbal medicine, of course. Nonetheless, as we, I think we all know, uh, in modern China and really for the longest time, for several hundred years already, the Chinese don't, uh, generally use the abdomen very much anymore, which is an interesting development. I mean, I wish someone would write, write about that. That's quite interesting, what, what, you know, what happened there and why why it fell out of favor or whatever. But my interest was the fact that, of course, the Japanese took it up and, and really ran with it and developed it. So I wanted to give a sort of a clear, as clear as possible, historical background to, you know, how that happened. And I needed to really go all the way back, you know, to the origins of, you know, the early trickling in of information through the monks and through religious practice um, from China uh, in the 5th century, 5th and 6th centuries, and really starting there, tracing the whole lineages of um, uh, different medical thinking. Uh, Of course, the anecdotal um, and almost almost rather uh, serendipitous in some ways, moments in history when Japan was very closed, which of course had a, a, a sort of a double whammy influence because it meant that both they were able within Japan to focus on the material they had already acquired and therefore develop some new ideas of their own. And there were two historical periods in which that happened. And I'm talking like 200 years. It's not just a few years. And at the same time, interestingly, whatever was happening in the Chinese mainland during those times, which was a lot, uh, that those that stuff generally didn't make it into Japan. So it meant that, you know, Japan was often running with older, more classical ideas that they then developed by themselves. And they often missed out quite important trajectories that were happening in China. So in one sense, the, the Japanese... Uh, embodiment of Chinese medicine is, in my opinion, became sort of almost a little deeper, but, but narrower, a sort of a deeper, mm-hmm, narrower mm-hmm. trajectory, which is yes,
1: because it because of the influence of the environment. You know, we were talking earlier in this conversation how this thing we call, I'm using air quotes here, Chinese medicine, mm-hmm. has its root in China, and yet it also has rootlets all over the world. And each of those rootlets... Show something of the character of the times and the culture and the environment and 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 everything that's unique to that place, which is why you can have a certain plant or a tree that grows in one environment, same basic genetic material growing somewhere else, and you know over time they actually become different species mm-hmm. right I, again we're I, I think in a way we're back to evolution and and what happens when you've got a certain um let's just call it a jing. Let's say an idea has a jing to it, an essence to it, but it it unwinds and develops in another environment and, and certain expressions come to the fore and other expressions recede to the background. And so in Japan, you, you know, because of these cultural influences that you're talking about, it really gave that medicine an opportunity to bring out particular characteristics that we find to be very unique to the Japanese. Yes. And, um,
0: if, any, any listeners are familiar with, well, it's rather interesting uh, analogy or thought that came to me is like Japanese erotic art, which I'm not necessarily a specialist on, but, and, and, I, and it also strikes me thinking about maybe the Indian subcontinent um, erotic art also. It's quite fleshy and bawdy, um, actually, and graphic in some ways. Um, and uh, let's take from the Edo period, for example, sort of 16th, 17th, 18th centuries in Japan. And if you compare that with the Chinese expression of uh, sensuality in the body, it's very, very different, uh, extremely different. And of course, there are many, I'm not pretending to be a historian here, but it seems, or, you know, anthropologist, but it seems to me relatively obvious that that has deep roots in the, um, in the religious and social practices like Confucianism and, you know, it's quite, uh, ordered and quite restrictive or prescriptive, let's put it that way in some Mm. ways. And the family is, you know, so there are certain practices that, that are not well, uh, tolerated. And I wonder, um, and certainly some teachers and colleagues have, have agreed with this, um, whether a lot of the Japanese interest in the abdomen from a sort of unconscious, almost intuitive perspective is the fact that it's fleshy and it's, it's tactile based, and you can directly contact the person uh, without words in, a, in an immediacy of it. Um, and at the same time, it's not taboo. Uh, I think in China, as far as I understand, you know, one of the reasons for the pulse development was perhaps at least historically because it was much more uh, much more of a taboo. T- certainly in the imperial circles where a lot of the medicine originally developed. Uh, you, you, you certainly weren't allowed to palpate the emperor's abdomen. God forbid. I mean, they, mm-hmm. these, these, all the nobles, they would be curtained off probably. And right. of here's my the, wrist, but that's yeah, all yes, you got. Yes. So there there are some, I mean, of course, that I'm sure to a historian uh, of, of any credibility, which I'm not one, I'm sure that sounds a bit simplistic, but I'm just giving you. No, a, I
1: don't think it's simplistic at all. And in fact, as we're having this conversation in this moment, I am realizing. That the use of the abdomen, and, and I've noticed this, these are just thoughts in the back of my mind in clinic, and I actually haven't ever shared them with anybody, but I'm going to share them right now. When my hands are on someone's abdomen, it is a sensual experience. Now, I'm not talking about being sexual with my patients, right? We're just talking about the, the erotic art of, of like Japan versus China, you know, the fleshiness of it. Putting your hands on someone's abdomen is a sensual experience sensual in terms of you're using your senses to really feel into something right and of course sexuality is very closely connected to that sensuality in fact often people will talk about sexuality as being a kind of sensuality or sensuality as being sexuality and you know of course as a man practicing there's that thing of okay i'm a man i've got my hands on a woman's abdomen. You know, I need to be very, very careful with my boundaries. And part of that is because it is a sensual experience. And I have in my entire practice, whenever I've had my hands on someone's abdomen, super clear about that boundary. In fact, maybe to the point where I'm not letting some information through that maybe I should allow through. Maybe I'm, I'm just thinking as we're having this conversation, I'd like to ask your opinion about this, but like, what is the role of having a sensual experience in the process of exploring an abdomen for the purpose of helping another person? I'm not talking about sexuality here. Yeah, I understand. I'm, I'm talking about a certain mm-hmm. inhabiting of, of, uh, uh, of being an enfleshed, embodied being and where that lands. Yes. have some thoughts well, about that yes no i i do um certainly the
0: japanese they have a term for what we would call the sixth sense i guess it's a mm. the term is kan, which is it's difficult to translate but it has to do with some people translate it as intuition but i'm not sure that's a, a pr- appropriate word but but khan is very related to in my experience to this the sensual level of direct experience meaning That it's not immediately available for intellectual interpretation. And it's not immediately available to our external five senses so much. That's why it has something that's slightly, slightly next to, but distinct from those discriminatory sensibilities. Um, It's hard to describe it, as, as you can tell. I'm having, you know, it's a challenge to try to put that into words. But with a hand on the abdomen, I guess, in a way part of the practice is to consciously disconnect from the visual and the auditory and the brain you know the, the senses that were attuned to because the sense that's coming at you is direct and immediate through your through your body and that's you know so if you disconnect from the interpretative aspects then you're open to some kind of direct sensory experience that of course, you don't know where that's going to go, and as you say, in our work, we have to have very clear boundaries about that. But it, it might, and it often, in my experience, does ha- give you access to levels of communication with the person that y- you cannot get in other ways, and those can be very revealing and very useful clinically. Yes, it's a sort of, you know, in shiatsu, something to go back to shiatsu, which is where I think in my shiatsu training I was lucky enough to be exposed to a lot of focus on that approach to learning. Um, for example, in Shatsu work, we, I mean, you learn the, of course, you do study to some degree, you study the meridians and the points and so on, um, the basics of, of, uh, of Chinese medicine, but you don't, There's not nearly as many academic classes, uh, as there are in say acupuncture or herbs or something as much, much less head work. It's a lot around the practice itself. Um, and as I say, the words like intuitive and so on are used very freely. I think they're rather inappropriate words, but it is a very direct sensory experience, and the individual is encouraged to go with that and see where it takes them. Um, of course, it takes two to tango, so the patient has to be comfortable and open, and that that relationship has to develop for that to really happen. One of the things in shiatsu that's helpful is that we always work through clothing, so mm-hmm. there's no direct uh, skin touch, which I think you know, it has more of a danger of crossing those, those, those boundaries a little bit. So uh, there's always that safety of, um, you know, uh, a thin layer of clothing. Um, so, you know, it's rare, I think, for people to be drawn into inappropriate kinds of connections. But it's, it's sort of, it is very close to a sensual
1: experience. I am, I am cottoning to that there's an element of that in there,
0: yes in appropriate
1: context yes and what you were just saying too about it's a direct experiencing and it's better if we turn off our interpretive mind so to speak as we're having that direct experience and i have had other people that i have trained with i remember uh, studying uh, some uh engaging vitality perspective with acupuncture with with uh, dan bensky margaret jenkins and uh, chip chase when he was still alive and and they all spoke to that again and again and again Of feel what you feel make sense of it later don't try to make sense of it as you're feeling it just feel it have the experience later put it together and and for those of us that have been trained to use our minds to, like, capital K, know something, it's a huge obstacle to that sensing and getting direct information. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, the touch aspect of our diagnostic paradigm, you know, one of the four pillars, um, if we think about yin and yang for a moment, there's really only one yang aspect of diagnostic procedure that I understand, which is talk, which is questioning. Mm. Because of course, you know, you're processing information and then designing, hopefully, you know, probing and important questions for your patients. So you're definitely putting stuff out to them. But when you think of looking, smelling, tasting, um, seeing, uh, and of course, touching, uh, these are yin aspects of diagnosis. So there's nothing more yin than touch in one sense, in the sense that Although there might be a yang aspect to your touch during treatment, in other words, there might be a yang part of what you're doing, um, mostly you're listening uh, with your hands or, or other parts of your body, sometimes the elbows, sometimes the knees. But it's a list, it, you know it's interesting. It almost um, challenges the perceived wisdom of yin and Yang principles when you when you start to think of, because to me, yang in Shiatsu diagnosis on the abdomen, is a listening practice. It's not a. It's not a doing practice. It's not an active practice. It's. It's not passive. Of course, passive is not the opposite of active. It's mm-hmm, a. Mm-hmm. It's but it's steady, and open, and listening. Um, yes. In fact, in many ways, the yin, in technique terms, when you're on the average, let's say you have two hands, so one hand is performing a yin aspect function. That's within that yin is almost more yang in the sense that that yin is is static and supportive and it's allowing for the yang to be free and open which is a listening thing the best the best uh, kind of metaphor i could give to that is my fairly limited experience with practicing and studying qigong some of the the yang postures are actually open postures where you're you're open to the qi, right and the yin is more kind of rooted and solid and you know, in in many ways, you can almost think of it as more yang, actually, in the sense of more, you know, powerful and right. So the yin allows the yang to be open and receptive. That's the interesting thing, not just probing or doing or searching, right? So touching is not really about probing and searching; it's about listening, um, in
1: in my world anyway. <laughs> that that makes a lot of sense to me, and and I think it's one of the huge challenges is to be able to. Listen in that like actively receptive way.
3: Mm. Mm.
0: Well, you have to clear a lot of noise
1: out. (laughs) Uh, Well, the noise. Oh my God! Yeah, the noise is always there. That's where the meditation comes in. That's where the meditation comes (laughs) in. I hear you, brother.
0: Yes, when you sit a lot, you you start to get a little bit better at that. You you know you you start to realize like oh okay that is a technique that is a something you have to practice. (laughs) It's not a given. Right. The quiet and yeah.
1: the noise, you know? Yeah. So I want to uh, I want to pivot a little bit here because I could, I could talk this kind of stuff forever. But I've got some very specific questions I want to ask you today while I've got you on the line. One of the things I notice in the media a lot is people talking about how awful the long haulers are experiencing, you know, the, the difficulty that people are having with their health after having COVID? And I keep thinking in the back of my mind, well, gosh, this is an area where Chinese herbal medicine could be really, really helpful for lots and lots of people. Number one, the Chinese have been dealing, well, the Chinese and Japanese, right, or East Asian medicine uh, foregoers, they've been dealing with stuff like this for centuries. And this is a place where our medicine really, really shines. This is a place where we can be really helpful. I don't think biomedicine can crack it in the same way that we can. And you've, you've been doing some teaching around this. You've got some ideas about this. Mm-hmm. And so I would love to have you share that with the listeners because this is all stuff we can use to be really helpful to our entire world right now. Yeah, well, I'm...
0: <laughs> Sadly, I, I I can't. The first thing I'm going to say is not in any way revelatory. It's uh, it's sort of obvious, I think, to most of us. But it's really mm-hmm. always mm-hmm. worth restating, which is, I mean, you mentioned that modern medicine or biomedicine is having some challenges with with dealing with the more chronic phases of, a, in this case, a post-viral event, and and I think that's true. Um, and the main reason I think we would all have to uh, probably agree is that the focus of biomedicine, as we know, is on the pathogen and understanding the pathogen and identifying the pathogen and the nature of the pathogen and trying to design treatment approaches that either kill or remove, or in some way uh, disable the activities of the pathogen. And you know, that's, that's a very, very important work. I mean, there's very high tech sophisticated lab work now going on around how to do that and how to, goodness knows, like transplant some other virus and have that virus enter the offending virus and disable it, all kinds of stuff. But the focus of our medicine is completely not on the pathogen. Mm -hmm. It's on the host. It's Mm -hmm. on the response, uh, or not, of the healthy response, the effective response, or not, of the host to whatever pathogen. So of course, in that sense, although it almost sounds ironic saying it, in that sense, or from that perspective, it doesn't really matter whether it's a virus or a bacteria or a, pa- or a parasite or, because we're looking at how we respond to these things and we're trying to, first of all, identify that it's happened, that that's actually occurred, something's occurred where our system has been challenged by something. And then to deliberately, not completely ignore, but not worry too much or not focus on what that something was but focus very very carefully on the individual's response mm-hmm. and how that changes over time, and in the Shang-Han-Lun system, as we know, that response is 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 described very meticulously in different stages, and those stages of course are are, 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 are defined by the nature of the symptomology that characterizes them so again, it's not an attempt to uh, Uh, talk about how the viral activity is changing or the viral load is changing or whatever other measure you're using. It's looking concretely at the manifestation of how the person is responding, trying to correctly identify the constellation of reactions that together hopefully would form a pattern that is recognizable. And then there are recognized treatment approaches for that particular moment in time in terms of the body's response. Um, and I've always found that model very compelling and very real um, because, of course, it's very individual, uh, which is one of the things that frustrates science, of course, because it's <laughs> it's very individual and it never quite looks the same. And But at the same time, any scientist and any modern clinician, I'm sure, would be the first to acknowledge that, you know, 10 people with diabetes don't manifest the same. We know this. We know this.
1: Of, course, know. of course. Of course. We, we have, we have whatever the right. challenge is to the organism, and then we have the organism's response to that challenge.
0: Yeah. Now, of course, I'm, you know, my own bias is uh, with the CAMPA system, we tend to be uh, pretty strongly educated from a Shanghai perspective, as you started by mentioning this morning. So, of course, that's my kind of background and my interest. Uh, I willingly acknowledge my understanding of the when being and later approaches to epidemic treatments is quite, you know, superficial. Um, and so I wouldn't be one to criticize. But I um, and I noticed that some of the literature out of, of uh, Wuhan and other parts of China in the early days of this particular ec- epidemic, so back in March and April and May in the publications that many listeners may have already read, Most of those formulations are variations or even, uh, you know, loyal to the original um, formulas from the Wen Bing, actually. And they include what we would call antiviral herbs uh, in them, like isatis and so on, Um, surface relieving herbs, uh, heat clearing herbs, and also some damp relieving herbs. And that's certainly an interesting approach. It's not one that I'm familiar with so much with uh, my campo background. And... You know, I would, I would, um, from my experience, look to the very specific stages of the Shanghan Lun, and their very well recorded and detailed treatment approaches. Um, so, starting with the Ma formulas, right through to the internal, more deficient Yin stages, where I think we're likely to find quite a lot of the chronic, long hauler, you know, long COVID sufferers. So, in other words, the Shanghan Lun is. Um, describes a process by which over time the yang of the body is gradually further damaged. Um, initially by the event of whatever it was, let's call it in this case a viral event, the surface yang is breached. And, but over time, because of chronic illness, the, yang, the internal yang gradually suffers too. Um, and it's compounded by often the inability of a person when they're sick to try to maintain or invigorate that internal yang. For example, through exercise or certain dietary habits or other things, they're not feeling like it, so it's a kind of vicious cycle. And the yin stages describe predominantly those stages where that yang is starting to be severely compromised and the person enters a very chronic stage of... You know, the, these recognizable post-viral symptoms like chronic fatigue and heaviness of the limbs and cognitive dysfunction and focus issues, brain fog, all of these kinds of functional um, or these dysfunctions are often related, at least in Shannon thinking, to, yes, cold, but really what we mean by that is the inability of the yang of different systems to function properly. So in those stages we're looking at the tonics and we're trying to uh, either distinguish between for example tai yin where ren shen based and gan based formulas are used predominantly to stimulate the yang and warm mostly through the gi tract directly or the shao yin where of course we need Fuzzi and we need some kind of metabolic stimulant to actually get the whole bot, the whole system re, you know that's much more uh, significantly yang um, yang damaged so you know that's rather simplistic but you know that's what i love about the shanghan line it's, it's not so it's complicated in a lot of ways but in other ways it's quite the over, the overarching um notion of it is rather simple actually it's just that there's a lot of formulas in there and differentiating them
1: is not so not so easy sometimes but <laughs> In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing Well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico Needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico Needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. So you could call it simple. And in some ways that's true. I just heard you say, right, for, for Tai Yin, you're looking at Renshen and Ganjiang. And for the Shaoyin, you're looking more at Futa. And I thought, wait a minute, that's right. That's right. I mean, it's very simple. Actually, I would call it elegant. The thing about this perspective, the thing about the Shanghan Lun, the way that you just phrase this. If you know what level you're looking at, then there's a place that very much will allow you to grasp it with a very firm handle and shift it. So you know that if you're dealing with a tie-in issue, maybe the foods are not yet. This is not a food situation. This is where the ganjong makes more sense.
0: And typically those, you know, many of those patients will be suffering predominantly GI symptoms and possibly some lingering respiratory symptoms which, of course, you know, immediately remind us of the tie-in. And that's that's very true to, to form, actually. Um, you know, a chronic cough, a chronic difficulty with with easy breathing or slight shortness of breath, which is a very common post-COVID symptom. Uh, and then the GI symptoms, which have been, I think, underreported, actually, but a lot of people have, you know, chronic um irregularities of bowel. so it's, it's almost like an IBS pattern, but it's actually, they didn't used to have that. It's definitely stimulated by the viral activity, appetite changes, gas, fullness, and uh, nausea, things like that. And then you have other people who don't have any of that. And in fact, many post-COVID sufferers who haven't, even in the acute phase, didn't have any respiratory difficulty at all. And yet, interestingly, they have a lot of circulatory disorders weird temperature changes cold hands and feet uh, mm-hmm. palpitations unexplained palpitations and terrible dizziness and things that start to look a bit more like the shaoyang actually
1: and well like and, the, and also you you have a very shaoyang kind of presentation with that sort of thing i mean that that's where something sort of like Chai Hutang is is so helpful yes yeah, certainly and going back to the yang stage, i mean if 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 there's
0: any evidence certainly with patients that i've seen of a slight, even very mild lingering fever, some kind of febrile component, then to me, that means they're still in the, in the Yang stages. And very likely it's the Xiaoyang, yes. And they're probably going to present with a, a Xiao Chao Yutang kind of a pattern. Yes, that's very true.
1: So it sounds like for you, a first distinction that you're making is, is it still in the Yang confirmations or is it moved to the Yin?
0: Absolutely. essential essential mm-hmm. and to me that's pretty much one rule of thumb is look for the febrile evidence mm-hmm. in other words is there either a recurring fever or some kind of weird temperature shift and change but including fever or some kind of evidence that the body yang is still putting up a fight that means they're in the yang stages at some point and then you can uh, you know, just simply use the law of statistics in in clinical work, which is to say yang Ming is fairly rare. <laughs> Xiaoyang is extremely common, so you can also you know so you can use just practical approaches that way to to imagine that you know this is don't don't keep finding yang Ming cases because it's probably unlikely. Um, and that kind of sustained high fevers and, and a lot of dehydration and stuff can occur. And of course, in the more acute stage, that's that's what was going on. They, that's pretty serious stuff. But um, yes, but quite those,
1: often in that stage, in that yangming stage, they will not even come to see us. They'll probably be in the hospital,
0: mm-hmm. most likely.
1: Yeah, on a drip. Mm-hmm. Um, yes,
0: most likely. But uh, I think the xiaoyang patients, yeah, they will they will be wandering around. They will have been released. They will still be suffering. Those the symptoms of that stage, and and it'll be still relatively acute, but not acute enough to have them admitted. So I think that's a step. Now the Tai Yang, we may not get to see too many of those either because it's early stage. Um, it's a pity because I think in those early stages, even with the very high fevers, and I'm talking about the first 24, 48 hours or three days or so on, you know, we have, especially in Shang and Lung medicine, fantastic formulas, if you can get them, um, in this country, I know there's some issues, but for example, like Da Tang, major blue dragon combination for very high fevers that could uh, induce things like meningitis-like symptoms that in fact happened with some of these acute cases. Um, we, we would have something to say there, unfortunately, in our um, medical system in this country, it's it, and just because of attitudes and not assuming that we might be able to help such patients, I think it's likely those patients would present to the ER and possibly get admitted. So I haven't sadly had a lot of opportunity to use the repertoire of Mahong formulas that I think could could be extremely useful in the very acute stages.
1: And of course, if we can handle it in the acute stage, it's less likely that you're going to have issues down the road. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Less likely.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's
0: fascinating to me that after nine months, you know, in the early day, and everybody, I'm sure, is aware of this. That although the numbers of incidences and you know transmission cases is going up horrendously, the proportional death rate is not going up. And the reason for that is because we in the in the medical community, they've learned uh, the hard way how to treat the more acute cases more efficiently now, and they don't, they're not putting them on respirators so. So quickly and automatically, they're often treating with, for example, steroids, and that single, that single fact to me says, "Wow, okay." So that's a whole body. Now we know this kind of cascade. we talk about the, uh, you know, the the cascade of inflammation in the body. That if it's very, um, if it's multi-system and very acute, it can be deadly. Um, but it's a form of heat. Uh, and there are medicines that we have that could, in the early stages be really effective um, in, in helping that. Um, but yes, that's possibly for a future time where our medicine may be more, you, know, let's say, lit, you know, more genuinely
1: integrated. Yes, well, that, we'll see if that happens. What are your thoughts on the use of steroids? Uh, in treating COVID, in in terms of how we would look at it from a Chinese medicine perspective.
0: Well, I uh, mean, from a Shaolin uh, perspective, certainly the the idea, or it's very very clearly documented in the in the text. The it, for those who might think, oh, this is a text about the so-called invasion or let's say effect of the damaging effect of cold and that's what it's about. And then the body's response. That's not entirely the whole picture because the term heat, the term for heat is mentioned throughout the text repeatedly. And the notion of pathogenic heat is intrinsic to the Shanahan law. It's just that the suggestion is that it wasn't heat that entered from the outside. It's the body's reaction in defending against if you like, cold or a threat to the body yang that creates that heat. So, actually, this kind of um, cytokine storm that they talk about, this kind of generalized in body inflammatory response to some kind of aggressive agent, is exactly how the Shanghai nun talks about the, the generation of heat in response to cold attack, which is kind of fascinating. Um, the interesting difference between, for example, as we know, Shanghai han medicine and let's say some of the later developments in, uh, much later developments in, let's say the Wen Bing is that although that heat is present and evidence in a lot of symptomology, we do not, in the acute stage, cool that heat directly because to do that would be to further damage the Yang defences. And that's why we see an attempt to firm up the defences and close out the attacker and regenerate from the inside in those early stages, rather than uh, use cold medicines, which is, you know, I don't want to get into a whole debate about right and wrong, but certainly there are some differences of opinion on how to do things that way. Um, So you ask, you know, how would Chinese medicine think of... um, the use of steroids, I think Wen Bing would be, would understand that totally. I mean, it seems to me that that fits, uh, the use of those anti-inflammatory agents is, it fits really quite well with with the Wen Bing thinking and in the 18th century, certainly. I'm not quite sure that it would fit exactly with the Shang Han Lun thinking. Having said that, you know, if you've got a patient who is essentially at risk of dying in the, in the ICU, Um, with acute COVID and some kind of multi-system inflammatory, I mean, are you going to give them da Qing long tang or are you going to give them steroids? I mean, I think we know the answer. So in terms of saving lives uh, in those very acute stages, I think we already know that modern medicine has some advantages. Um, The question is what you do after that, you know, when the patient survives and then they have all sorts of other things. So i am be the first one to say that, although I do think the frontline role of Chinese medicine is often underplayed and, mm-hmm. and misunderstood. Nonetheless, Western medicine is very potent. And in some cases, it's
1: undeniable that we need to use it. It's a very potent medicine. Uh, you know, I think all medicine has its place where it's very effective and very appropriate. Absolutely. And, and absolutely, that's when you should use it, right? Yeah. I mean, God, when I was a kid in like... Junior high school, all the guys had to take a shop class, right? We had to learn how to like build bookcases and mm-hmm. you know cut wood and stuff like that. And our teacher would always say, "Right job for the right no, uh, right tool for the right job, boys. Right, <laughs> right, right tool for the right job." Yes, yeah. And and I think that's really true with medicine as well. And we're also living in a time where conventional Western medicine is is the go to wetest medicine for many of our patients. Uh, sometimes it really, really helps them. Sometimes it really, really harms them. Our, my practice is full of people that at one point or another have been either failed or harmed by conventional medicine. Not to say Western that it's bad stuff. It's right tool for the right job. Maybe they, you know, they they got harmed by it. They didn't get helped by it. But even if they do get helped by it, like in the case of COVID here, it can help at one stage, but it's not so useful at another. That's right. And I think the in the case in talking about COVID, I think
0: that you know the, the jury's out for the moment because we're still, I mean, I know it seems an eternity, but we're still only nine months into this and numbers are rising, but you know, alarmingly. So we're not going to really know really about these so called long haulers or long COVID sufferers really until at least the next two to three years. Mm-hmm. Um, we you know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We, we I'm sure we all remember what is now referred to as ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is caused by the Epstein-Barr virus, which, you know, but all this stuff is now known. But I remember very distinctly working in a clinic in London with my teacher Gretchen in the late 1980s when those patients were coming to our clinic and they had been given the runaround at the psychiatrist's office because they were identified usually with somatoform disorder or some kind of major depression disorder. Whereas in fact, it turns out they had ME, they had chronic fatigue syndrome caused by a virus, but, and they used to call it, they eventually call it the yuppie flu. And there are all sorts of other common. uh, uh, so I'm, I'm just mentioning this because we've been through a phase where those patients were not recognized, uh, were not diagnosed correctly and were sort of passed out into the realm of psychology and psychiatry because a mechanism was not understood. Now we understand the mechanisms better, and COVID was identified very quickly. Um, but nonetheless, there are going to be these, you know, as, it, as has happened with ME, sufferers who, unfortunately, dare I say it, you know, 20 years on, they're still having certain symptoms that need attention. Um, and we also have some experience with, with ME, for example, of the kinds of therapies that have helped people. And even on the CDC website, you can read it uh, under ME, um, even acupuncture, moxibustion, uh, no, no, not moxibustion, i beg your pardon. Acupuncture certainly um, um, massage and uh, nutritional therapy and other therapies are mentioned directly. So I think it's only a matter of time before, you know, allopathic medicine will acknowledge the long term attempt to treat these chronic sufferers um, with a lot more different approaches, including those that we have, um because frankly the at that point, yes modern modern drug therapy is I think not going to be helpful
1: It um, hasn't proven that helpful up till now right right at some point, conventional medicine may or may not recognize the value that we bring to this. I mean, like you said, on the CDC website, there already is some mention, but here's what I know. Patients on their own are going to seek out people. Yes. Who can help them. They will.
0: They're, they're, they're in the driving seat. Yeah. Yes. My sister is one of them in England, sadly. She, um, she undoubtedly had COVID, although the acute phase was not acute in her case. She did. She had no awareness of having caught anything. She didn't have any major symptoms, but Three months in, she started developing a lot of the symptoms that look very much like COVID. She never had a test at the time, so we can never be sure. But um, to my mind, she's uh, she's become one of those chronic sufferers, sadly, and uh, has a
1: lot of issues. That, yes. Um, well, the, the tests, I've known people who clearly had COVID. They clearly had it. The test came back negative. Negative, So... Yeah you know we one of the beautiful things about our medicine we are able to look at someone and go yeah it's probably that and even if it's not we can still treat it like this because because we don't care if they've had a covid diagnosis we care that their body is responding in the way that it's responding to something you know? exactly so when's this book going to come out where is it out already oh it's out yeah it's, well, it's out it, it out. is um, out yay yeah. gongshi gongshi congratulations <laughs> look <laughs> Here we are. Got a copyright in your hands. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah.
0: Um, 21st of October, it was out in this country. Um, it's just out, I think, down under in Australia where there were a lot of my students who were looking to get it. Um, yeah, it's out. Um, it's published with, uh, uh, these days, Singing Dragon uh, is uh, one of our sort of specialized publishers for East Asian medicine. So it's with Singing Dragon, um, Fukushima and Campo. Yeah, I mean... We'll see. Um, Some very generous colleagues uh, have offered to write some um, little articles, maybe in some of the journals. Like, I know um, um, there's an article coming out in Najam, I think, and and maybe in the Lantern in Australia also, uh, written by Sharon Weisenbahn, who who offered to write something. So um, maybe we'll hear. Hopefully, we'll hear a little bit more about it in the next few months. Um, I'm just curious to. I mean, what I'd love is if if there was an interest in it, if the schools actually decided to take it up as a kind of required text or something like that, because it would be great to think of younger students in the schools at least having some access to some material on this subject, because it is a very under underplayed subject in terms of teaching, in my experience, in the school, especially the TCM schools don't tend to um, mention it very much. Um, so that would be... Yeah, that would be a triumph if I thought it could, you know, find its way into people's libraries.
1: I'm sure it will find its way into people's lives and libraries and probably school curriculums to some uh, degree because the classic medicine is getting a lot of play. And there's no one, I think, these days that thinks about the Shang Han Lun in the way that we might have thought about it 20, 25 years ago in terms of, oh, this is just for like common colds and things like that. We We know that this phenomenal jing, well, no, actually it's not a jing, it's a treatise. Might as well be a jing. I mean, it's, it, it's amazing what's come down to us over the years. And people just gravitate toward things that are helpful. You have a, a very unique perspective in that you use this sensing to help guide you in your practice. And I, and I think for people who caught into that kind of thing, they'll be attracted to it. So uh, you'll find it wherever books are sold, I guess.
0: Yes, I hope so. You know, I, one of the interesting things that I found in teaching in the last number of years is that um, I've managed to, apparently the style I'm teaching seems to be very appealing to body workers. Yes. In addition to acupuncturists. Are you surprised by that? No, I'm not surprised by that. Yeah, I'm not surprised either. I hear you say it, and I think that makes sense. I'm delighted. I mean, my I have a group in Montreal, for example, that is predominantly shiatsu practitioners that came. And it's very exciting personally for me to see them start to launch themselves into the herbal, herbal community because um, I don't personally have any resistance to that idea. They don't have. The level of detailed knowledge of meridians and points that acupuncturists have. But you know what? That's not necessary for herbal mm-hmm. practice, at least in the Kempo tradition. Yeah,
1: no, and it's in not. In some
0: ways, uh, right. And in some ways, they have an advantage and a leg up with this very sensory approach that we've talked about. And uh, so that's very exciting for me because I feel, you know, within reason, I feel hopeful that, you know, herbal medicine. Can find a broader audience in terms of practitioners because to me it's been, I've always felt it's been a little bit exclusive. To be honest, I, I've always felt that there's been an unspoken hierarchy about, you know, body works down here, and then there's acupuncture, and then there's herbs up at the top, and you know, all of the rest of it. That that may be a, a a perceived or bias of my own, but I certainly don't believe that that's the case. And I think herbs, um, for me, there's nothing more earthy. And basic than herbs and herbs that grow in the ground and you know Mother Earth and all this, and you know cooking and you know the use. So in some ways, you know, why should that be reserved for intellectual um, study only? Um, In fact, in many ways, this may be a topic for another discussion. But in many ways, I've always felt that acupuncture is far more of a a rarefied study in some ways. Um, And if you look at historical practices, that's very true because a lot of people that practice herbs, including Zhang Zhongjing himself, were not from traditional medical families that practiced acupuncture and all these higher, you know. So in some ways, herbs and massage belong to a sort of more basic, hands-on kind of direct, also female, I may add, female Mm -hmm. heritage, Mm -hmm. as opposed to acupuncture and martial arts that tended to be more the higher educated, you know, people working within the, the the courts, and this is not unique to Japan. I think that's also true in China. So anyway, I've, I've introduced a completely different topic, but
1: yes, you have, and and maybe one that we will circle back to another time. Back to what seems to be the theme of our conversation today: there are these things that appear to be opposites that are indeed a greater unity. Yes. Well, Nigel, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure and a Mm -hmm. delight to sit down with you for a bit and congratulations on the book. And thank you for your time today.
0: Michael, thank you so much. It's great to talk to you.
1: There is something that I fail at all the time in my practice. It's being able to linger in that space between sensing and thinking. I always appreciate conversations like this one with Nigel that reminds me to linger with a sense of attentiveness that doesn't quite yet make its way into words. It does open up a whole other domain. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological